0: Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And it's the second week of Blue Temper, baby! And that means my fellow additional host and survivor of the Rieg's reign of terror is here. You might have seen him on HBO's The Crime of the Century. You might have watched him cook dinner on Twitch's Family Dinner with JP. You might have heard his voice on Friendsmen. Or, of course, listen to us chop it up on We Heard About Pluto, because JP Novak is here. Welcome, pal.
1: George, thank you so much for having me. And boy, I do way too much. You're right. No. Perfect,
0: perfect amount. So, very excited to have you here. I know that you're a big-time horror guy. Why don't you tell me a little bit about where that started for you and what your relationship with horror has been like over the years?
1: So, I'm the youngest of four boys, and also uh, of a, a very 80s divorce, and so my dad especially would, would let us watch things that we really should not have been watching, but... Um, <laughs> But the way it went was he didn't like horror, so we'd go over, but he would let us rent, I mean, just, like, all of the 80s, like, the Ski Patrol, Cool Guy, Bullies movie, like, sure. like all of that stuff. It was, it just hot like,
0: Dog the movie.
1: I was going to say Hot Dog. I wasn't sure if you'd know it, but yes. <laughs> yes, we rented Hot Dog many times. And, and so, you know, so, so I was supposed to kind of, like, rated art stuff with my dad. Well, my mom didn't want us watching that kind of garbage, but in order to concede, when we'd go to the movie store with her, she'd let us get the horror movies that my dad would never let us get.
0: Wow. Now,
1: you have to understand that, you know, my 17-year-old brother and, and like, a, you know, at the time, 17-year-old brother and uh, uh, 14-year-old, 13-year-old, and, and me, that nine, like, <laughs> there's a different spectrum for what we should be watching, but I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, I saw Halloween, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan in theaters, and wow. I was not old enough to have been seen in theaters. <laughs> it it, it just—it was this thing that I was exposed to really young, and like horror movies didn't really scare me past a very young age, unless they did. And when a movie scared me, it, it like it was too much. It was mm. too much. I, I, another one that I saw—I was whatever year it came out. I saw it in theaters. Uh, sale, not Pet Cemetery, Pet Cemetery, mm. and uh, great one. I sometimes actually, dead is better. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. When Herman Munster gets uh, <laughs> gets slashed mm. uh, at the Achilles sure, tendon.
0: Is, yeah, his uh, ankle.
1: And falls over, and Ooh. I literally walked out of the theater and did not go back in. <laughs> and, like, it, but it's like it was a rite of passage. It was awesome. Like, like it's so cool that sometimes... As much as I've loved them my whole life, sometimes a horror movie can still actually scare me, and that's really cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love that, too. And I can definitely relate to kind of just being along for the ride of whatever your siblings are watching, even if they were not things that were appropriate for you. Because my brother is also significantly older than I am, even though it's just the one. So uh, I was pretty much just watching whatever he watched a lot of the time, Um, which means that there's like... A weird like gap of my knowledge where like I never watched like Full House or any of those things <laughs> because they would have been appropriate for me as a child growing up but like I was just watching whatever my brother watched at that point oh man so uh, I think that makes a lot of sense that's that's awesome that uh you've been you've been with it for so long and I'm definitely curious to know about your favorite subgenre then because even just in our own conversations You know you're all over the map, so I'm I'm definitely (laughs) definitely wondering if there is a subgenre that usually speaks to you.
1: There's a couple. I really like a well done ghost movie. I don't think we've had that many of those in recent years that I like Mm. jumped out at me, Um, or just like something that's going to mind fuck you at the end. But the two genres that are subgenres that really get me one would be found footage because when found Mm. footage is done well it's incredibly scary yeah um, it's just that there's a lot of hokey found footage out there. <laughs> and then um I actually think my number one is slasher though I, I I I just because I grew up watching those original like as they were coming out watching so many of the nightmare on Elm streets especially was my favorite like there's something about a slasher flick and I and we've talked about this oh uh, I think I think we actually we I think we talked about it on Friendsman but anyway There's something about a slasher flick that's like deliberately funny and deliberately Mm -hmm. aware of the audience. And I think that's what I like about, I mean, all horror done well, staged well, is very aware of the audience. But I think slashers do it in almost a wink and nod way that is just part of the fun.
0: Definitely. And there's a certain audience expectation with slashers, I think, that you need to hit the beats a little harder. Than you do in some of the other subgenres, where there's a little more room for flexibility. And so I think that by knowing that they have to sort of follow a certain timeline, even when they do break that, it's done in a more reflexive manner. You know,
1: I completely agree. I completely agree. It's funny because I, like I said, I grew up watching horror movies, but the it, it took me well into like, in, I mean, into my early twenties at least, where I was. Before I became aware that, actually, no, it's a really smart version of storytelling. It, it, mm-hmm. It's where we tell our fables and our cautionary tales mm-hmm. is through horror stories. Um, so it, true. It's so full of metaphor. Like, like, like It's the thing where it, it, it hadn't dawned on me that, like, oh, the setup is that her husband died and she's raising a kid on her own and she doesn't have time to deal with her own things because she's raising a kid. Oh, oh. Grief and depression. Oh, mm. oh, Duke, Duke, oh. Duke. <laughs> <laughs> I just, but I love that moment where you kind of start piecing it together and go.
0: Sure, yeah, it's really cool. And uh, the movie we're talking about today falls squarely into the first subgenre that you mentioned, and in fact, is sort of the popularizer of this subgenre. Um, it is not the very first found footage movie, but it is certainly the the most explosively popular one to break onto the scene. And the movie we're talking about today is, of course, The Blair Witch Project from 1999, a real interesting one. And it was my first time watching this movie for much the same reasons as The Ring, in that, first of all, I was but a pup in 1999. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> There was there was no way I was getting into this, especially with parents who didn't like specifically not this kind of horror and also aren't like going to the movies that often. But also, because I was very young, and because of the way that this movie seeped into the public consciousness, it was just so scary to me. Because it was just like a scary concept. I had no way to actually approach it. You know, it was just a scary thing that got whispered about on the playground. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like The Ring and like Paranormal Activity, uh, this is a real watershed moment movie. You know, it, like I it really captured the cultural imagination. It's also, uh, I think, the first horror parody I saw because I had the Thumbs collection from Steve Odekirk, who you may know as the creator of Kung Pao Enter the Fist, but. He also recreated several movies with the thumbs as actors and a noseless face CGI'd onto them, including Batman, the Titanic, and the Blair Witch Project. So it's funny how these things kind of, uh, you have so much experience with these huge zeitgeisty properties, even before you've actually, uh, had any kind of real experience with it. Do you remember how you first heard about
1: this movie? Oh, see, this is, I was the correct age. I was I was 18 years old when I first heard about it. I was in college. I might have just turned 19, but um, Wow, perfect. It I mean at that age, you wanted to see the, whatever was the cool movie coming out. But the other thing was I have never I, I mean in hindsight, I recognize how disgusting marketing is, uh, but I was <laughs> I was 18, 19 years old. The marketing on this, it was the coolest thing in the world because they 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 pretended that it was a documentary and 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 that's and and like that is the base point of of most found footage or many found footage movies anyway, but it, it was people didn't know people legitimately didn't know if this was real or not, and it was this awesome hype that surrounded the whole thing and like of course, it wasn't real like of, of but, <laughs> It still was the thing that, like, it was, I mean, it's so funny. It's, it's like, whispered on the playground is exactly right. Like, people talking about, like, did you hear about that movie where those people go missing in the woods and they've never been found and it's a documentary? Like, <laughs> it, it was crazy. But it really was, it was, like, such a cool, it, it, you couldn't not hear it. Again, given the age, like, at 18, 19 years old, like, that. I was fully surfing the wave of, of Zeitgeist.
0: Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> And we'll we'll definitely get more into that uh, that viral marketing. But this movie came about because two Florida boys, uh, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, were interested in refreshing the horror genre. They said by paying homage to the psychological horror movies that they loved, as opposed to the hack and slash sequels and remakes that had littered the preceding decade. The what exactly what you were talking about? They gathered thirty five thousand dollars and put together a thirty five page script outline with character profiles. Instead of like a, a real actual dialogue uh, with the intention of it being primarily improvised and using that as the audition process, Heather Donahue, who pay, who plays the initiator of the Blair witch project recalls her audition scene as being, you've served half of your sentence for killing your baby. Why should you be paroled? She claims that her response was, I don't think I should. And that's how she got the, the part.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs>
0: One thing that I also want to get your opinion on, though, uh, this was something that I thought was really interesting that they talked about in behind-the-scenes stuff, is that there's kind of an impotence to this style of filmmaking, where they're completely reliant on the actors to see what they want them to see, pick up on the environment, and all of that, as opposed to being able to be like, okay... Time for you to look at those rocks and act scared because it's so guerrilla filmmaking that they have to just
1: trust their actors. That's exactly what it is. And kind of there's 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 a lot of reasons I love this movie. One of the biggest reasons I love this movie as soon as it came out and I started reading up on how they made the movie and everything was exactly that. Because, like, I, I have such an appreciation for for every aspect of what makes a good movie. But acting is one of those things. And this was a situation where they, 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 the reason that the three main characters are named the the actors' names is because they sat, I mean, this is a situation where they like sit down, they become the character, they start to just nonstop improv. You're constantly in character for the next five hours, 10 hours. I mean, and then suddenly it's like, really, they're out on a camping trip and they kind of are the characters, and you see it in the performances. Look, these aren't Oscar-worthy performances necessarily, although the snot-crying scene will get this back, <laughs> very famous. But it, it just—it but it also feels organic, and you can always tell when they have to hit a certain plot point, and then maybe they didn't get there exactly right. Or there's a line I want to talk about as if we go through the plot. There's there's definitely a part that really still bothers me to this day in the movie. Who kicks a map? Why would you kick a map? Why would you I kick that would you fucking kick, map like, kick in the river? In the river, yes. <laughs> no one kicks a map. And was it fully unfolded, or was it like, or was he like doing like the folded up pieces of paper playing football with it?
0: I, mm, great question.
1: And that's really the mystery of this movie. No, <laughs> the but true I, I, villain. But, but it is. I, I, you can tell that like they had to have trust in each other. And and they, the actors got it, and I think they really lived in these parts. And, mm-hmm. and and I think you're seeing, like, a very real, they're playing the character, the plot's going to be based on, if they're playing the character well, then what they choose, that's where we're going with it.
0: Yeah, it is really interesting, especially, uh, I'll talk about one specific instance where they had to kind of be like, Ah, uh, you guys kind of, like, fucked up this one important thing, and we need you to undo it. <laughs> oh, but, no. Uh, <laughs> but uh, oh, okay, can't wait. Yeah, we'll, we'll, so we'll get to that, but... Uh, I did think it was interesting that they warned the um, people who were auditioning about the nature of the filmmaking, but not the specifics. Uh, Daniel said that they cautioned auditioners, if you don't like camping, being out in the woods, and being scared, don't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> but they assembled a trio of Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Josh Leonard before heading out and shooting in the Seneca Creek uh, State Park woods for eight days. One of the producers, Greg Hale, had gone to army survival school, and so he used the being hunted by enemy soldiers training to harass the characters, making them move long distances by day, playing the noises of children playing and shaking their tent at night. Being given just a power bar and apple and water to get through the day by, like, the fourth day. (laughs) You know, it really was really harsh conditions.
1: That's insane. I had no idea. That's insane.
0: Yeah. Josh specifically uh, said, they let us sleep the first night. And it lulled us into a false sense of security. And then it built up. And by the fourth day, the insanity was really coming into play. And the crew would watch the dailies and that night give character motivations privately for the next day, which I think is so smart. So interesting creates this really great tension because not only do you uh, possibly have conflicting motivations, but also just wondering what did they get to like, what do they know that I don't know now? Yep. Like that, that mistrust, the the resentment that it breeds I think it comes across on screen in a really great way for the character dynamics.
1: It makes so much sense. I had no idea, but it makes so much sense because of the way that they they perform in this movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. That must have been such a, like, honestly, fun. Like, that must have been a fun shoot outside of the not eating or drinking. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, it was also raining a lot, which does suck for (laughs) camp. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) But they wound up with 20 hours of footage, which got trimmed down to the tight movie we know now, and they also wound up creating a ton of mythology for the movie, most of which lived on BlairWitch.com, a website that really took advantage of a blossoming and nascent internet age to create a feeling of this movie that could be real, like you were talking about, you know... Cannibal Holocaust is famous for getting banned because people thought that it was real. I
1: was going to I was going to say wait a minute is Cannibal Holocaust filmed as a documentary and I it's yeah. been so long since I've seen it but yeah it is isn't it?
0: Yeah it is. Okay. Uh, and and people thought that it was real and there is some genuinely grotesque stuff in there including animal abuse and i do not enjoy that movie i don't recommend it to people but uh it is at the very least an interesting story to read about and uh and and it is kind of the similar thing where people f- are so willing to believe even going back to uh orson wells and war of the worlds you know people are so willing to throw themselves into these worlds that they um Feel the fear for real, and 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 they just let it become like a part of their life in such an interesting way that it becomes something that that they have to react to. In the case of *Cannibal Holocaust*, it became a banned film and one of the video nasties. But for this, because it had an outlet for uh, on the internet, you know, it became this huge discussion based thing where people were spreading rumors and, and going on the message boards and everything. Just really fascinating.
1: It's the first viral thing I remember in my life. Right. That wasn't viral
0: marketing didn't exist.
1: Yeah. It it just, and it it was amazing and it did really build that hype. And like, I, again, given the age, especially like I, it was, I I was compelled to see this movie. I had to see this movie. Mm -hmm.
0: I thought it was really funny that the website wasn't actually their idea Bravo used to have an indie filmmaker spotlight show called split screen and Eduardo and Daniels shared some test footage for the yet unfinished movie and people lost their fucking minds. (laughs) They started going to the message boards for split screen and they crowded out all the other spotlights. So Bravo went to them and was like, please make your own site because we cannot handle this. Oh my God. So they did, and it was a huge success. I used the Wayback Machine to check it out, and it's still a pretty cool website. You know, there's a lot of cool backstory stuff, including how they found the footage, uh, which is that an anthropology uh, dig from the University of Maryland found it at the site of the cabin, seemingly manifested inside the sterile soil under both the foundation and an undisturbed layer of ash. So even right away, you're getting creepy, creepy little tidbits that are like this this footage can't even possibly have gotten there, yep,
1: yep, oh my God,
0: it got cops deriding it as a hoax, and Heather's mom was also on the site, and this site really gave them a ton of momentum as they headed for sundance, and it created a really electric atmosphere because the internet was not quite as full of lying then as it is now. <laughs> And so having their friends pop onto these message boards and be like, this is actually true, people just believed it. They were like, well, I have no reason to doubt you, guy on the internet. Oh, my God. It's, it's really fascinating. There was even a call into an L.A. radio station when the radio station was asking about people's favorite urban legends. And someone called in and was like, do you know about the Blair Witch? And this drove people to the site, which led to more call-ins and this kind of self-perpetuating hype cycle.
1: This is amazing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable the way that they managed to make this work out. <laughs> so the movie got bought by Artisan Films finally, and they were like, we're leaning into this. Not only driving people to the site more and more, but also giving Ben Rock, the movie's production designer, two months to create The Curse of the Blair Witch, a special on the sci-fi channel, in order to further blur the lines between reality and fiction. And they had a ton of extra footage because of the style of the shoot. Like we said, it was like 20 hours. And so they fashioned a follow-up instead of a traditional behind-the-scenes like many movies were getting at the time. And this discussion, The Curse of the Blair Witch, of, like, the backstory of the curse was filmed like just a regular true crime documentary thing, like you would see on History Channel or sci-fi or whatever. And it aired on July 11th, just before, and it added a ton of fuel to the fire that this movie was real. They were like, look, look at how all this footage, like you couldn't just air this on TV if it was fake. (laughs) Well, it turns out you could just air it on TV if it was fake. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that sense of authenticity that you were talking about and the way that the performances bounce back and forth, you know, without that bedrock, these reality and fiction blurring endeavors would simply not work.
1: Yeah, no, entirely. Yeah, there's a certain amount of buy-in that's required. That's definitely just, wow, I cannot believe how that all worked out. (laughs) So much
0: like the actual movie, actors for this little Curse of the Blair Witch got just a bio and some conflicting details about the legend of Ellie Kedward the Blair Witch, And they were also left to improvise their actual answers as they were interviewed. But the authenticity carried through into this. You know, they cast well, getting Mike's actual brother to play his brother, an actual small town historian to play the Burkittsville historian. And Rock said that his goal was to capture how if you and I grew up across the street from each other, we're going to have a different opinion about the ghost in the house at the end of the street, which I thought was a really interesting approach to this. I watched it. It was fun. Uh, you know, definitely captures the feeling of those true crime uh, special investigation kind of things. So if you're a, a huge Blair head, check it out. <laughs> and where, where did you watch it? That one is on Tubi right now. Okay. Tubi, undisputed champion of free streaming platforms. <laughs> <laughs> now, there were two other companion mockumentaries that didn't get quite as much of an audience. The Burkittsville 7, which was about... The fictional theories behind the witch and the numerous Erie Burkittsville tragedies, um, but specifically the 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 killing, the serial killer that they talk about a little bit at the beginning. Who um, killed the uh, seven kids? Right, par. And I'll kind of I'll touch a little more about this alternate mockumentary when that comes up in the movie because there actually was some interesting stuff in that one. That was my favorite of the three supplementary materials. But there was also. Shadow of the Blair Witch, which ser- which serves as connective tissue with the sequel, through this really fascinating anti-marketing marketing, wherein the upcoming Blair Witch Two is a irresponsible dramatization of real events that happened as a direct result of the popularity of the original movie, and the mother of the killer that the that Blair Witch Two is based on, in heavy air quotes, uh, is trying to block it. And so that's what the supplementary uh, mockumentary is about. Uh, like, the, the true the true version of what's going on in Blair Witch 2. It's interesting, it's kind of an unprecedented kind of thing, to be like, yeah, the first one is irresponsible, <laughs> and fans of it are these crazy people who are going to go commit murders. And to, like, really kind of sacrifice your initial audience because you're like, uh, we don't, they didn't like what was happening in Blair Witch 2. They were like, this is going to be bad. And so they, like, completely reversed it. They were like, Blair Witch fans aren't going to be happy. So we're just going to completely throw them under the bus and make this entirely new thing. It's just such a, a weird decision. True, truly, like I said, feels unprecedented to me. That's, But that's
1: exceptional because they were trying to like save their original art from yeah. the taint. Like, like good yeah. for them. <laughs> um, I I you also haven't seen it, the second one, right?
0: No, not yet. Mm. I, it looked like it might be fun bad, but it also looked like it might just be bad bad.
1: <laughs> I think it's going to depend on whether or not you were a fan of this movie.
0: Mm, I was. I genuinely was, which I take a little pull back the curtain a little bit. Um, this movie had a lot of things going against it for me to like it, <laughs> and uh, I was really shocked at how much I came away really loving this movie. I thought it was really great. That so, is awesome. That is yeah. awesome. But by the time this movie actually came out, the budget had gotten up to 60000 but it paid off in spades with The Blair Witch Project turning that 60000 into almost $250 million, making it one of the most successful indie movies of all time and the 41st most profitable horror movie to date, but... At the end of nineteen ninety nine, it was the sixth most profitable horror movie to date. So it was uh, even more impressive then.
1: Hmm. Arguably helped to uh, continue to popularize horror movies beyond beyond being genre stuff.
0: I don't think that's arguable at all. Sure. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> I think that that's that's just a fact. Yeah. And the critical reception to the film was interesting, too. There was a lot of praise for the found footage technique, which it didn't invent, like I said, but was still a landmark movie for the popularity, even being hailed as the most significant horror film since the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which feels genuinely possible. You know, there's been a lot of really great horror movies in between those two. But, you know, in terms of really shaking up the landscape and creating a genre in a way that the style really seeped into other movies, uh, it doesn't feel like such a stretch to say to me.
1: I understand, I agree, maybe it's not a full stretch, but I actually like want to go look at a timeline of movies, because <laughs> I, I, I'm not willing to fully commit, but mm-hmm. the point is still well made. Someone
0: was willing to say it, and mm-hmm. I'm at least willing to hear them out.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you contrast this with the plenty of detractors who saw it as a gimmick, with uh, nauseatingly shaky cinematography, was a, uh, a quote that I saw, and... A lot of people saw the advertising campaign as uh, cynical and distasteful. So, you know, mixed. (laughs) Yeah, old people. Yeah. (laughs) And I got to say, 1999 is a famously great year for movies. But the two that jump out to me are The Blair Witch Project and The Matrix, which came out just two months apart. And what a crazy shakeup of the film industry happening in spring of 1999. Like, these are... Two of the most culturally significant movies of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like, in terms of the amount of impact that they have had, whether you like them or not, totally irrelevant. They are culturally significant. Uh, and and uh, for them to come out within such a limited time span is really uh, shocking and interesting. Now,
1: I, I will say you omitted the other movie that changed the entire cultural landscape. <sighs> Uh, You're going to say Phantom Menace? Phantom Menace came out in 1999, May of 1999. (laughs) These three movies are just right on top of each other, and Mm. honestly, the world changed. The world changed.
0: (sighs) Now this is pod racing. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, so yeah, they changed the entire landscape. We can't say which one had the biggest impact. We can't say it on the air because we don't want to get sued by Disney. What?
0: (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. Whoa, an ad. Don't freak out. Just wanted to let everybody know about the cool posters we now have for the best little horror house in Philly. A horror house party, and everyone was invited. Friend of the pod and incredible artist A.T. Pratt, who you may remember from the Eraserhead or You Are a Shark episodes, put together an amazing poster with at least one reference to every movie we've covered as the best on this podcast. You can check them out at littlehorrorphl.com forward slash shop, but also... Patrons can get a 15% off coupon, which is basically the cost of the month of Patreon. So, you know, that's an option too. Uh, I think the posters are rad as hell. Check them out, see how many you can name. And now, back to the show. All right, to get into the actual movie, we start off with a title card, and it's. Just kind of fascinating immediately, you know, it's the simple standard aerial bold, which anybody could access, immediately laying the groundwork for the realism of the found footage nature, since it's not this huge, gaudy, art nouveau thing. It's small and understated on the screen, but also kind of shaking wildly to give this incredible, unstable feeling. It feels like when you're looking at this title screen, that what's inside is straining to get out. That's scary. I mean, they set the mood right away. Yeah, they really do. The opening text reads, In October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Berkettville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. We open up on our intrepid explorers getting ready to head into the woods. Heather Donahue, Josh Leonard, and Mike Williams. Uh, who? Mike Williams, the other two, are just meeting him for the first time. Heather is prepared with How to Stay Alive in the Woods seems like a well-titled book and the book about what happened at Coffin Rock and they're going to be recording on two handheld cameras. They got batteries, food, juice. They make sure to say they got juice and I really love how they're just kind of fucking around. You know, the loose nature of it makes it feel way more real. You know, she's just like shoving the camera in a bag of marshmallows and I'm like, that's me. I do that. I just fuck around with the
1: camera. And that was mimicked in every found footage movie after this in order to, like, build camaraderie with, between the characters without having to do it. I think mm-hmm. it worked here. I think they were being cutesy together. But, yeah, it's, it's a good shortcut to, like, they, they initially make you like these, these scamps. <laughs> Heather also makes a
0: comment about how she wants to avoid the cheese. She thinks the legend is scary enough. And it's not hard to read this as a bit of a meta comment about the film and how stripped down it is and how they sort of have this confidence in the movie to be scary without having things constantly jumping out at you. You know, one thing that I really like about this, especially compared to later found footage movies, is that it takes the time to build to being scary. You know, so much of it, so much of modern found footage movies are like, you walk in and wow, there's a scary ghost lady, and and we're being haunted all of a sudden. And this takes the time for them to be uneasy first, instead of just scared.
1: <laughs> it, it's a, I mean, it really is a movie about build. I mean, this is a movie you become immersed in exactly what they're going through, and it is mm-hmm. a slow burn until it really pays off.
0: <laughs> Definitely. The legend of the Blair Witch gets revealed as they do their first shots, and it's that 200 years ago, Burkittsville was Blair, and a real tiny town of about 20 families, but an unusually high number of kids died in the 1940s. A really great cut from the solemn opening to them hooting and hollering as they celebrate their successful first little little scene there. Uh, I like that a lot. They're also asking locals about the legend and getting several perspectives and morsels of the story, which is fun. A very cool way to kind of tease it out, like you say, get that build going. And this, this the, one of the legends that they sort of tease out is this legend of Rustin Parr. <laughs> Rustin Parr. Very good name. <laughs> and in 1940, after seven kids had gone missing, he finally came back down and said, I'm finally done. And when they went to investigate, found the bodies of the kids supposedly he'd take them two at a time and make one stand and face the corner while he killed the other one because he, quote, couldn't take the eyes on him. And there's something that I feel compelled to mention here, which is that there's already some contradictions in this story, which is that if he's taking kids up two at a time, how is there an odd number of corpses? Now, to me, this can be explained away in two fashions. But first of all, when I mentioned this to a friend of mine when I was watching a movie, because this was, I was still not quite on board yet and I wasn't sure how I was going to go with this movie. And so I was like, do they ever explain this? And they were like, no, but this is not the movie to get hung up on the details.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: But I do think that this could be explained away in two different fashions. First of all, That it's a commentary by the filmmakers on the fallible nature of crowdsourcing, and legends in particular, kind of getting jumbled as the years go on, becoming more about the broad strokes than the details, much like this movie, some could argue. The second way it could be explained away is that uh, the first time he just did a trial run and only took one kid. (laughs) Oh my god. Wait, I've got scenarios that would work, I don't want to contradict you, but... Well, get ready, because it turns out that by viewing the supplementary materials... This actually is explained.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, now I want to hear the official canon explanation. The canon
0: explanation is that the eighth child is Kyle Brody. And Kyle Brody supposedly escaped from Rustin Parr. And it's his testimony that got Mr. Parr killed, basically. He's the one who gave a lot of the details. But the question is... Is his testimony even real? Because he, first of all, had knowledge of the abductions, which in theory he shouldn't have been there for if he was trapped at the house. He was also a bit of a psycho himself. People remember seeing him cut the legs off frogs and watch them drown in a, in a bucket to see if frogs have feelings, he said. And so the Burkittsville Seven this supplementary mockumentary that I was talking about, and the one that I, like I said, liked the most, postulates a theory that Kyle is the one who actually did it, not Rustin Parr, or that he compelled Parr to do it, especially since uh, Kyle is the only one who knew all the other victims. Hmm. So there you go. That's the canon explanation for something that is, like, so truly glossed over. They do not really touch on it very no. much in no, the they regular do movie. And that's kind of what I liked about it, is that I was like, there's this one little detail that is sticking in my craw, and then by doing a little digging, the the they provided. they There was an answer. It was a lot of fun to explore and find that. And in an era where the internet does not exist, and I can't just, like, Google... What's up with the eighth kid in the Blair Witch Project? Right, that stumbling upon this this uh, mockumentary as it just airs on the Sci Fi Channel would really compel you to take it seriously yeah. and and yeah, absolutely. believe
1: it. It's that like I've I mean I, I I've watched this movie so many times over the years. I have such a fondness for it. And the thing that has always been my view of it was what you your friend said about it, that, that it's really not the movie to get caught up in the details, which is also to say what you said about, like, this is also about... I mean, everything is word-of-mouth storytelling. Something happened in the 1860s or 1940s, and it's been passed down generation yeah. to generation. Like, no, you can't trust the stories. And I think that's also part of building the tension in this movie, where... Yeah, uh, there's no witch. There's no witch in the woods. Don't be there's no <laughs> witch. There's nothing supernatural in these <laughs> woods. Uh, be like like cause listen to how none of them even have their stories straight. It's all just yeah. a mess of things. It it really actually disarms you. It's, it's it kind really of does. It, it's, it's, uh,
0: it's so good. This cabin winds up being haunted. Uh two hunters who camped by it also disappear. Parr claimed to have heard the voices of a woman never specifically says the Blair Witch, one of the the historians, Mm -hmm. notates, uh, Mm -hmm. but he does say that he heard the voice of a woman telling him to do this stuff. And over the years, more and more stuff starts happening in the Burkittsville woods. Our trio meets Mary Brown, who is a woman in town who insists that the woods really are haunted and that she had an encounter with the witch. She was fishing with her dad when an eerie presence intruded a woman with a wool shawl who was covered from head to toe in horse fur slash hair. They call it fur, but I'm not sure I'm ready to say that horses are furry. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. As a counterbalance for her story, they also say afterwards that she says she's in the movie industry, a ballerina, a historian writing a book on American history, and a research scientist at the Department of Energy. So they, they're doing this really great balancing act of like... Yes, you get to see her be very sincere and feel very uh, truthful in her in her story, but then you get the three of them kind of mocking her behind her back and saying, oh, she was so crazy. Yeah. Here's all this other stuff she said when we weren't looking. Yes. You know, uh, just very, very uh, well done. They feel good about their first day, but lots of work tomorrow. Great moment, again, of realism where they're drinking in the motel and Heather, like, struggles so hard to keep that swig of scotch down. <laughs> the next day, they run into two men fishing on the trail. These damn fool kids never learn. This is a very fun scene. Uh, it's one of the few moments where the, the younger man, to me, feels a little like a character. <laughs> but... But it is such a fun scene, like these two fishing guys like bickering back and forth and telling a fun story about the ghost and everything. And the old man claims to have seen a white mist like rising up over the water uh, and like a hand that drowned a girl in shallow water years back. But it it just kind of devolves when Heather asks how that relates to the story and he can't really tie it in, which makes it makes me laugh a lot, you know. These people just want to be part of the story. It's exactly, yep. Yeah, and to make these outsiders believe. You know, he says anyone worth their salt from around here knows this area has been haunted by that old woman for years. They also say, however, they don't necessarily dissuade them from going away. And so they say that uh, Coffin Rock, the place they're looking for, is only 20 minutes from town and easily
1: accessible via an old logging trail. Should be no problem to (laughs) get to, right, guys? Oh, boy, an old logging trail, not not a current logging trail, an old one, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The most reliable uh, uh, road out there, really. So true. So true. And after getting lost,
0: hiking through the woods for hours on this 20 minute trip, uh, they finally make it to Coffin Rock. The tons of equipment in hand making it a hassle to hike, but they're finally there. They're excited. And the story of Coffin Rock is that five men bound to each other, hand to feet so that the witch could build a little structure out of them while they're still alive, they said. That's fun. A little house made out of people. Yep. Um, And the intestines were ripped out crudely, uh, written on indecipherably with a knife. Uh, when the men who found this returned with the authorities a few hours later, the bodies had been removed, leaving only the vultures and the stench of death behind. And this is the first moment where, even though it has been kind of goofy, when they talk about the legend being enough, mm-hmm. this is really creepy. Mm-hmm. The description of what happened here, it's such a great, like, classic campfire story kind of feeling. Like, the the real, like punchline of they
1: were missing and it was just the stench of death it's yep. like come on it's so perfect and 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 that's that's exactly like they know how to build the legend it, mm-hmm. it really is and it does start with exactly as you say like a campfire story but one that has that resonance that that they always do and in 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 movies like that where where Two people tell dumb stories, and then the third person tells a story, and it has that resonance of like, maybe there's something true here.
0: Mm, yes, like, it's based, some in of it. Yeah. yeah,
1: some of it comes from a real place.
0: Yeah. They make camp, but it's pouring rain, not ideal. Josh also thinks that he heard cackling outside last night. And as they start hiking again, Heather reveals two interesting pieces of information. First, that she got lost yesterday, despite the trails being well documented, in my opinion, possibly witch related, or. Possibly just they're bad at reading maps, and also she's not sure. She says that she believes. Well, you're gonna learn today, Heather. (laughs) But even even at this point, you know they're still kind of joking around with each other. I love this moment where they're not so super self serious. She goes, "What killed this dead mouse? Witchcraft?" Like she's obviously kidding, (laughs) but it is a very silly moment. Like it made me laugh. Yes.
1: That's it, it, Yeah, the, the build-up. I mean, you really do begin to like the characters mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. you don't. Right, exactly. And
0: that starts to turn here because the tensions flare since Mike is pissed that they keep getting lost. And he says that he doesn't fully trust them yet either. Hiking, hiking, hiking.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> when suddenly, piles of rocks, even in the trees. It is creepy. There is all kinds of eerie feelings here. And Heather goes, ah, dang. What was that Bible quote Mary was telling us about Esau and the rocks? Oh, well. (laughs) Again, this is the kind of thing where it's like a little minor detail. You don't have to look into it any further than that. But
1: you want to know, yeah. It is
0: rewarding to look into this this, uh, Bible verse because it would seem to be. Genesis 31, 52, which reads, This pile of rocks and this rock set on end will remind us of our agreement. I will never go past this pile to hurt you, and you will never come to my side of them to hurt me. Basically, the final warning. Here there be witches. If you cross this line, it's on sight. Wow.
1: That's, yeah. <laughs> what a throwaway <laughs> line that actually had a lot of impact.
0: Yeah. And again, like I said, they're they're taking the time to make it feel real. It's not, wow, we walked in and holy shit, there's the witch in the woods. People are floating. It's like, oh, this is just a weird thing to find. If I walked in and I found piles of rocks all over the place, my first thought would be, this is weird. Could just be a dude who liked making rock piles. You know, it could be anything. I wouldn't jump to Blair Witch. Right. But... In the back of your mind, especially if you're there to make a documentary about this witch, <laughs> you start going, but what if it's not just a guy? Wow. <laughs> wow. I just really, I really like that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't spoon feed you. I, I like that a lot. They're still joking around at this point. Uh, Witches and days gone by were roasted just like my Vienna sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are back at the rocks, cemetery deal. One of them knocks over one of the rock piles, and oh boy, what a rookie mistake. Now, I want to point out, it's
1: Josh. Josh knocks over the rock pile. Fucking Josh. Yeah, the reason I want to point that out is things take a turn for Josh, moving Mm -hmm. forward.
0: Sure, sure do. And they think they hear something out in the distance that night that wakes them up from all around. Mike is scared to go out, though, and to record, and the next day, he says he thinks it sounded like a bunch of people running around, locals fucking with them. Scary enough on its own, Yeah. even if that's correct.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> next day, still pouring, they're pissy, they're lost again, they have to camp another night, despite Mike having to be at work the next day, and return the equipment. So they're already way off track, everyone is miserable, and they're furious, And they hear the same thing that night, out in the cold, 3 a.m., sure that it is human. The next morning, a rock pile right outside their tent. Another warning. The map is also missing, which leads to extremely strained relations. And, uh, you know, we kind of already touched (laughs) on what actually happened to it. But in the moment, you are like the witch.
1: Yeah. The fucking witch took the map. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) And then even you never ever are like, of course, someone fucking got mad and threw the map in the river. Even if it is a human error, you're like, oh, it must have been Heather who fucked up because she had it last. Yes. And it disappeared in the night. They make a big mistake and just head in a direction. They say you got to hug a tree, JP. That's the move when you get lost in the woods. Did not
1: know that. Just stay where yeah. you are. Somebody Hug find a you. tree.
0: That's right. Uh, although following the creek, I will say, does feel like a reasonable plan of action. At least there is something to follow and not just like wooded area all around them. Yes. So maybe it's not the worst idea. Funny line from Heather where she says, it's very hard to get lost in America these days and even harder to stay lost. <laughs> Wow. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> wow. I,
1: it, and this is pre-cell phones and GPS, too. Like, yeah. you can't even... Oh, not pre-GPS. Pre-popularized well, GPS. pre popularized gps But on your cell phone.
0: Right. They used... Actually, I didn't talk about this in the production information, but they actually used GPS uh, very, uh, very much in, in this movie in order to, like, leave little drop points for instructions oh, for where they had to go in the cool woods shit. and stuff. Yeah, it was cool. I should have mentioned it. And now I did. So there you go. <laughs> And that's why I was queuing you up. Right. This was all planned. <laughs> and as they start to go stir crazy, Mike reveals, I kicked that fucking map in the creek. Yep. And they all start going nuts. Heather insists that she knew where they were. Obviously a lie. Mm-hmm. And Mike says that it was useless. They had no idea where they were. And Josh also wonders why she can't admit that she had no idea what they're doing. And it is interesting because, on the one hand, she's lying. She didn't know where they were. She says as much later. But also, this just means that they're both wrong. (laughs) Like, like, both sides of this argument, you're like, you are all screwing yourself here. Like, I – but you also have to wonder, like, even even if he hadn't done that, would it have made a difference? Could they have – Made their way out. It didn't seem like they could have.
1: I from from my perspective, they're already the witch has them trapped in the lab. Yeah, like that's that's at least at least from my 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 earliest view of the movie. That that was always how I viewed it.
0: Right, and so I'm sitting here like you know they all get mad at Mike, but he's fucking right. It's useless. Yeah, (laughs) like I can't be that mad at
1: him. (laughs) Totally agree.
0: While wandering around, they find a bunch of wooden effigies hanging in the trees. Again, very creepy. This is like just an additional escalation of the rock piles. Still kind of like a human possible thing. Yeah. Very creepy still, but it's not so explicitly supernatural or anything. I love it. I like that Mike says, no redneck is this creative. They're all starting to really start to believe here. It's obvious. He, even as the guy who was like, this is just people fucking with us. He's like, this this is moving beyond that for me. They're scared enough to not even light a fire that night, but it doesn't help. They hear the sound of someone outside and a baby screaming, and there's a bunch of fumbling as they run, and they scream for God's help. Heather really going buck wild. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I love it I love it I think it's so funny She's like Oh my god Oh god What is that And I'm just I'm loving it I'm loving it
1: <laughs> I'm really loving Like 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 You're watching this With virgin eyes Like it's really yeah. it, it, God Because all of these things And like And that, that interview with Mike Is like It's really sad Like it, You're starting to really feel scared Like the cynic Is starting to believe mm-hmm. It's really scary yeah,
0: yeah, and they find a place to hide with the light off until daybreak, and when they get back to camp, they find it in disrepair and with slime around. Um, this is just KY Jelly in real life, but it was supposed to be Witch's ungent
1: Ugh, disgusting. <laughs> I hate when I get ungent on my stuff. I, I hate Unjent everywhere, man. It just gets everywhere. Yeah. Well, no, but, but but specifically, it's on Josh's stuff. It's only on Josh's stuff. Right. And right. he's the one that knocked over the stones.
0: So true. Mike and Heather fight again about her recording still. This is not the first time it's come up, but this is great. You know it's something that they complain about all the time. And I like that she's like, I got to get as much as possible, which is a realistic thing for a documentarian in particular to, to be going for. But – At least someone is like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, this is the biggest thing about found footage people for a lot of people, or about found footage movies for a lot of people, is like, at some point it becomes unrealistic for someone to still be like, I need to record what's happening. Yes. But someone asks about it, and it's here that Josh points out, I see why you like this camera so much. It's not quite reality. It's like a filtered reality. It lets her put a barrier between her and what's going on and pretend that she's not scared. It is a perfect explanation. Improvised, this by Josh just completely explains away one of the biggest flaws (laughs) on footage movies. It's just so well done. It makes perfect sense. It It works for the
1: character. It is a moment of genius it it, it I, I completely agree and it's not just that it works for the character it defines the character it it, mm-hmm. it cements in your head what this has been building to in your realization of heather and what she what it is to her mm-hmm. and it just like it's part of like the there are arcs to this movie there are there are character arcs to this movie and it, it's it, it just makes it all the more astounding because i as as you've said i mean like there, there aren't really jump scares in this movie there. It's not, it's not doing that. And Mm. a lot of the other found footage movies to follow, you know, they were just very ham fisted or very much about, you know, as you were saying like, Oh, and then suddenly in the first scene, there's a ghost woman in the mirror and (laughs) like, like it just so spoon fed and doesn't have Mm. any of the depth that I think that this movie really does.
0: Yeah, definitely. Three nights in a row getting worse every night this mayhem is happening they're breaking down as they pass the same log that they crossed the river on they're weeping they have to set up camp again how did they walk south all day and wind up at the same exact spot they say it's here where it's like even if you were like wow mike really screwed them that it becomes really cemented that there was no way out for them
1: yep yep and, and, and as you pointed out, they, they crossed that that barrier. They, they crossed that threshold. There was a warning, don't enter here.
0: Mm, yeah. Josh freaks out on Heather for still recording and she breaks down saying, it's all I have left. Please stop. You know, it's something to hold on to. keep herself focused besides on besides what's happening. Mike is trying to prepare the defenses and get the get them to focus. But Josh is just consistently needling her. Gonna write us a happy ending, Heather, he says. You know, it's it's so cynical, what a twist of the knife, like, but it's such a, a a great moment again, you know. I think that Heather and Mike do a really great job, but a lot of what Josh brings to the actual character moments, I think really, really help this movie.
1: He has, I think, some of the most extreme acting, mm-hmm. at least in kind of the flatter parts of the plot. Yeah, and and he also, it's it's again he has an arc and like his is just this like collapsing, like like he's yeah. losing his humanity the longer he's out in the woods.
0: Yeah, definitely. And he goes missing in the night. Oh no! Oh, <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> so, well, it happens right now, so it's not really a spoiler. <laughs> And so...
1: I haven't finished it yet.
0: Oh, well, that's. A, I feel like that's on you at this point. Um,
1: I always walk out right at the park where <laughs> they're fishing. It's just too scary.
0: Yeah, I, you know what? I get it. They decide the next morning to go east instead of south without Josh. And they take a whole nother day. And then they hear Josh screaming in the night. The two of them say it's one of two options. Either it's Josh or... It's this thing
1: imitating Josh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Neither option is great. No, no, really, really, really not. But if it was a Wendigo, I mean, they would have talked about it. And Wendigos, they're in the Pacific Northwest anyway. Mm -hmm. This is not Wendigo territory, so. True, true,
0: true. They do think it is the latter, though. They think it's something imitating him because they asked Josh to say where he is, and he just continues to scream. But this means, if it is something imitating Josh, that the thing... Knows that Josh is gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not good. Uh huh. They find a bundle of twigs left out right in front of the right in front of the tent the next morning, which Heather just like throws to the side. She's like, I'm not fucking dealing with this. <laughs> and tellingly, the fabric tying the sticks together is Josh's shirt fabric.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They celebrate that they're still alive. When Mike finds some cigarettes at the bottom of his backpack. And this is just a really nice moment of catharsis. When they sit together, all their squabbling is kind of forgotten. They're just being together and hugging and rocking back and forth. Like, what the fuck is happening? They need some humanity. Like you said, Josh's has completely abandoned him at this point. But we can see that for Mike and Heather... The the isolation it has not completely happened yet. Now, Heather has finally gathered the nerve to undo the bundle. And this is the part that I was talking about where they were like, hey, did you guys see the bundle? And Mike was like, yeah, we had a really great scene. And uh, Heather just like threw it to the side. And they were like, oh, fuck you guys need to open the bundle. Oh my
1: God.
0: (laughs) And they were like, we can't, we can't do that. We just had a great scene where it wouldn't make any sense for Mike to open this bundle anymore. And so for them to make it work where it feels like Heather has finally gathered the nerve to undo this bundle Mm -hmm. and not like someone came in and was like, you're about to undo this whole movie. is remarkable in and of itself. That's such a great behind-the-scenes story. That's awesome. Inside the bundle, they find the rest of Josh's shirt soaked in blood, and when she opens that, she finds hair and actual human teeth, which they got from a dentist nearby. Uh, Gross. Very? Yeah. An hour and ten minutes in to this movie, we finally get Heather's final confession recording. This is the iconic poster moment, uh, often parodied you know she's miserable she's
1: crying and there's snot oh, yeah she's not crying it's it, but it, like genuinely like she yeah she really did a great job here. <laughs> yeah you know she's like overexposed from the light which is like at a un-
0: it is so unflattering the that you're like lighting, this yep. must be real <laughs> yes you're
1: 100 percent right <laughs>
0: She says she's sorry to everyone's mom and everyone in general, and she says that she was very naive. It's her project, and she insisted, so it's her fault. She insisted they weren't lost. She insisted that they keep going before being distracted by a noise, and she says,
1: we're going to die out here. So so powerful. Chilling. So it's chilling. great. It's amazing. It's just so amazing.
0: They think they hear Josh again in the night calling out for them. And following this voice leads them to a house in extreme disrepair. Mike goes in after him, and it's very creepy while Heather pleads with him not to go in, but she eventually goes in after him as well. And we're seeing through the camera, you know it's uh, there's a little bit of light from the the 16 millimeter camera. The digital camera has the like black and white night vision. Uh, you just get these little creepy images of like child's handprints on the walls and the stairs and the transitus fluvii symbols on the door frames, and Mike finally heads into the basement with Heather absolutely shrieking. At this point, this entryway into the uh, into the house is such a change of tone that it it feels like the rug being pulled out from under you in such a great way. You, It really feels like, no, don't go in there. This is so clearly like the focal point, the epicenter of what's happening. You know that they shouldn't be following this voice. They know they shouldn't be following it, but they are compelled. And um, it's just great. You know, you're along for the ride at this point.
1: It's funny how it was a movie about slow building tension. And then it does hit this peak. And it's such a short portion of the movie but it is incredibly intense like every single thing was building up and just tightening the strings and tightening the strings and tightening the strings which is which is shown through them running and screaming in a movie where mostly they've walked and hiked and 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 talked
0: they're Mm -hmm. running
1: and screaming for the entirety of like this last section of the movie
0: it's so funny to me the two moments that really i think exemplify this movie in my head are there's, like, the one very quick scene where Mike is just, like, chewing on a leaf. <laughs> and they're just, like, sitting. <laughs> it's such a weird little moment. It doesn't need to be there, but it really helps the movie breathe. And you compare that to these final moments where Mike is running around. Uh, you know, it's just the, the variety within that feels incredible. You know, it, it's such a such a great change. And it feels, it feels like it happens so naturally. Now, suddenly, Mike stops talking, which is bad. And it's the camera fast. drops.
1: For the first time in the entire movie.
0: <laughs> the camera drops, which is also bad. And Heather sees him standing in the corner, staring at the wall, much like some former victims of the Rustin s- Paul. Seven or eight
1: children.
0: And Heather is freaking out. Suddenly, her camera drops as well, still rolling for a bit until the film runs out and the credits roll. Really, really fantastic ending. It is so creepy to see Mike standing there in that corner. But Artisan did actually send them back to film four other options, which they wound up sticking with this initial idea, which I think is the right move. But I did feel like I should at least mention these four other options, which are... Mike hovering inexplicably in the air. Meh. Mike crucified on a giant stickman with stickmen hanging everywhere. No. No. How, how did that happen so quickly? No. Mike hanging by the neck. Yeah, boring. And Mike facing the camera as if in a trance, stickman all around. Of the four, this is the most compelling to me. Yeah, agreed. But... I don't think any of them come anywhere close to tying back into that Rustin Parr story, understanding what's going to happen to these two, knowing that this is the end for them, even if you don't actually see it. It is so confident. It is so incredible to have that forethought to hold back and, and, and not feel like they had to have one of these gore moments or something at the end here. Um, it's just it's just remarkable, and it's and it's part of what makes this such a great
1: movie it it's somehow incredibly chilling and scary. and then it just it immediately doesn't fade to black. It cuts to black. yeah, and it is just I, I mean, I will tell you, like and then you sat there in the theater for a full thirty seconds wondering what was next. Yeah. like it just its just such <laughs> a great ending. It's yeah. such a great ending, and it scares the shit out of you again without any gore without any jump scares like it's just it's all it's all creeping up in your head it sure is and now
0: jp we have reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie of all time and i'm gonna let you
1: start it's a lot of pressure yeah well Like. then the brakes I have I have a lot of I have a lot of nostalgia tied up with this movie and and there was a period of time where I wouldn't rewatch it. I will tell you the year that this came out, it scared me so so much. I live in the the woods in Maryland. Like when I was in high school, I grew up in the woods in Maryland. We all had scary stories about the woods being haunted, and we believed them. Mm-hmm. And so the, the when this came out, I for a full week after this movie came out if I was walking to my car at night, I was literally sprinting. <laughs> I, I I was scared out of my mind. And this is, it's just one of the few things I talked about Pet Cemetery earlier. This is one of the few movies in my life that legitimately scared me outside of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I love it for that. But that was my nostalgia. And the thing is, the reason that this is the best horror movie of all time is, you know, we want to celebrate the movies that made it on 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 such a minimal budget, and, and horror is a genre that's about innovation. Mm-hmm. It always has been, and it pushes the boundaries of all the other genres of, of filmmaking because of the things that they come up with to do. And every time I watch it, I'm still astounded that a movie made with no money, I mean, for for for, for this kind of film anyway, um, or for, for, for what would be a major film release, I mean, it was no money, You just watch this piece of art where two filmmakers and three actors came up with this idea. They all fell in love with it. They all believed in it. And that's what you're watching up on the screen. And they never underestimate their audience. There's so many tidbits. There's so many many just like, as you pointed out, that line that I didn't know about, the biblical reference. It's just so telling. And it's so everything in its deliberate. And there are very few moments except for the two fishermen. There are very few moments where you feel like no. They told them like you have to hit these plot points, and the people in the scene didn't do a good job. I, I think our main actors, especially, exceptional job. And I think and and I I hate I I don't like to be over dramatic about this, but I think it just kind of mirrors what you said earlier. I think that this changed the industry. It, it changed the genre certainly, mm-hmm. and, and it had such a huge cultural impact and for such a little tiny thing that came out of Maryland, which is the best state. that's... I I mean, I just don't know how you... Pound for pound, I don't know how you make a better movie. Who could argue with that? To
0: me, this is the best horror movie ever made, because for me to come into this movie with so much baggage... (laughs) Like, I don't like ghost stories. I don't like found footage. This movie is so ingrained in the zeitgeist that it is impossible for me to not have already been spoiled on it. It is parodied to death. So I've already seen portions of of the movie, basically, without, uh, without having seen the movie. And yet, it doesn't only meet those challenges. It thrives under them. Because I came into it expecting it to be like modern found footage, it totally subverts those expectations in the very best way. It is so methodical. It is so well edited. You know, there's a two and a half hour cut that they talk about that was supposedly terrible that they screened originally. And and they were like, no, we need to cut this down because it's boring. And by getting it down to 89 minutes... It does a fantastic job. It is so tight. It is so tense. It does such a great job of executing that build. And that is what the movie is all about. Their inspiration was psychological horror. And they really, really succeed in paying homage to that. While still bringing it into the modern day. You know, it it pulls this forward in a way that like you said, and like I said earlier, truly changed the landscape of the film industry. Found footage was now a thing. It is still uh, constantly pumped out just because it is so profitable. You know, it's... it's So many places took the wrong lessons from this movie, but there are so many good lessons in it. And I think that for it to not only um, be a fascinating story of of just like what movies were doing and how society interacts with them but for it to also be a good and fun and scary movie in addition to that, yes is, is incredible yep. good for you, The Blair Witch Project Yep, that's why this is the best horror movie ever made JP, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man, please it's your time to plug anything you want. Tell the people where they can find you.
1: I, I will, George. Thank you so much. I've wanted to come on for so long. I I I I as we've become friends over the past year, it's just amazing. I I I I DM George constantly about like, did you see this horror movie? Have you seen that one? <laughs> I, it's it's so nice to find a, a kindred spirit on this whole journey. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. and I love the podcast. But if you want to listen to any more of me, you definitely should check out first and foremost uh, we heard about Pluto. It's a psych rewatch podcast. I co-host it with, well, uh, it's hosted by Reegs, and then George and I are the additional hosts. Um, I also do a Friends recap podcast with Nate Kiley. Uh, it's called Friendsmen. Uh, we're just about to finish season two right now. It's a great time to get caught up. It's really fun, and we're really doing it critical. It's not a Friends love fest In fact Other than when George was on It was mostly uh, (laughs) People just taking A big old jump On the Friends show I'm the first
0: one Who liked the show Friends
1: Very very few of our guests Have enjoyed the show Friends Um, And and, and, uh, Yeah You can also uh, Check me out In the HBO documentary uh, The Crime of the Century About the opioid epidemic And how Mm. it got started And who got rich Off of it Boo sacklers Yeah and uh, I'll be bringing back family dinner with JP very soon. Um, Hell yeah. So get ready to cook with me. But uh, if that's too much, then just listen to this episode of, uh, of uh, The Best Little Horror House in Philly and uh, just enjoy that I was here with you.
0: <laughs> well, I think you should go listen to all the other stuff as well. Um, JP is an amazing cook. It, all the food looks so fucking good. <laughs> You're and, so sweet. Well, so people should definitely, if you have any interest in learning how to cook deliciously be watching Family Dinner with JP. Um, It's really great. And uh, as far as my plugs, folks, it's Plutember, baby. You go listen to We Heard About Pluto. You've heard me talk with Riggs. You heard me talk with JP now. You you, you understand the dynamic. Next week, you're going to hear both of these gentlemen come on uh, to talk about Suspiria, the remake, with me, which I'm very excited about. I picked that one. very
1: excited about this one. Yeah. Um,
0: and then also, uh, I encourage you all to sign up for the Patreon at Little PHL because patrons will also get even more George, JP, and Riggs action because we're going to be doing another live legal thriller on the 15th. So uh, sign up for that. That's this week. Holy shit. <laughs> that's this week. When you're listening to that, that's this week. Uh, so, uh, so sign up and, and make sure that you're there and you get to make your voices heard, uh, and weigh in on, on who is in fact the ultimate litigator. Um, I, look, one of them is an actual litigator and <laughs> I, I don't want to say that this is unfair for the other one, but tough shit. Uh, you know, that's, that's the break. So, so lots of fun stuff coming up. Uh, and then also, I think I mentioned this already, but I am taking a break on the last week of December. So after the episode with the three of us, uh, that'll be it for the end of the year. But then we're coming back with a, with a real good one. That's all. Oh, also a little horror PHL on Twitter. That's it. All right. Bye everyone.
1: Smooches.